Welcome to Shut Up Nerd, a podcast where two nerds take a deep dive into a geeky subject. Today we'll be talking the Nintendo classic Zelda II, The Adventure of Link. Selling 4.38 million copies, this is the eighth best-selling game for the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Often considered the black sheep of the Zelda family, this game holds a special place in our history, and you get to hear us talk a lot about it today, including its wild story, differences in the Japanese and U.S. version, the hardest and easiest parts of the game, and more. All right, let's get on with the show, and welcome to the stage the unofficial king of the nerds, Jeff May. Hey, everyone. Hey, hi. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Shut Up, Nerd with Dre and Jeff. I am Jeff May, and we have, as well, my co-host. Dre Alvarez found most places as nerd numbers, and Jeff, thank you for putting me first on the, the dossier. I appreciate that. I have no ego. That's no, that's a mm-hmm. lot. That's a huge mm-hmm. lot. It's easier to do that alphabetically. Plus, you know, you picked the subject too. Like this is, a, I'm so excited to do this. I feel just lucky. I, I'm just jazzed to be on the show, man. <laughs> on your own show. Uh, well, I mean, this is technically your show as this is gone through uh, the patreon.com slash Jeff may create your own podcast thing. I put that out there as on a lark and you kind of discovered it. Is that right? Well, what I'll, what I'll say is we're going to be talking the 80s in this game for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm a child of the 80s. I'm used to like talk radio. So I'm used to, you know, call in now if you want to win. <clears throat> and regularly when you're talking on your podcast, and I think you have 20 at this point, 30, 40, 100, I don't know. You're everywhere on the internet. <laughs> you'll just randomly say stuff. You'll be like, hey, I've got something new in the works. I think I found your Patreon early that way as well. And I do feel kind of weird because I'll be like the only one there, but I'm like, didn't, didn't everybody else here? Je- Jeff on the last podcast at the very end said, I, I got new, I think I forget the guest because you have so many great ones and I don't want to get the name wrong, but at the end you were like, I'm restructuring my Patreon tiers. And so I just wanted to check out what that was going. And then of course, that's where you spot at the bottom. Yeah. I, I put that in as a little Easter egg and it got taken almost immediately, which is, is very flattering as well. And when you contacted me about the subject that we we're going to cover, both the title as well as what we're going to do in this inaugural episode, I got giddy. Like I was so excited when you brought this up because this is one of my favorite games and something that I've actually relatively recently reacquainted myself with and that is if you want to say it out loud it's oh yeah we are doing zelda to the adventure not adventures the adventure of link and lots of geeky stuff behind it including hopefully might be related to some advertising stuff that's just a fascinating backstory zelda 2 the adventure of link the the i was going to say long awaited sequel to zelda but it wasn't that long it was about two years or so that we saw it get sort of released out afterwards a very controversial game, hard to follow what is many consider to be one of the all-time greatest games of all time, to be the sequel and to see where you move forward through that. I think they did a very admirable job. It smacks of Super Mario 2 energy, where it's a, a completely, or not completely, but it's a very different experience than what people were expecting in America. And I'm ready to talk about this. I I remember I got the first Zelda on my sixth birthday, I think, 1987. So it would have been like my sixth birthday, maybe my seventh birthday. It was a huge deal. Gold cartridge. Awesome. Obsessed. Zelda 2. I rented it for a while before we ever played it. And boy, that's a good one. 
Well, I was going to say, so that, that's really fascinating on both sides. So Zelda one, my backstory is I had a babysitter that brought it over and he was just hyping it up. He's like, this is an amazing game. And it was, it was described. I think when they, they promoted Zelda one as like the anti Mario, it was supposed, you know, cause it was a scroll down. It was more puzzle based as opposed to, you know, I mean, there was hitting, but a lot of the game is figure out puzzles, you know, puts this there. wasn't as much Mario just there's, stuff. There's, there's no time limit. Yeah, I mean, and then there, and then of course, one of the fun things is you can go through it a second time. It's a completely different mission. Just a lot of fun there. So he sold it to me that way, and I didn't really like it. I think I might have just been young at the time. Zelda 2, I'm curious if this was the thing where you were at. When I was in third grade, it's expensive to get video games. And so there was a lot of resale market. There was a place called Buyback Games. It was the biggest deal in the world. My mom would take me to it. Additionally, you'd have friends that had video games, including that rich guy that had them all. Mm-hmm. And what you would normally do is you would do a cartridge swap, kind of just collateral. I give you this game, you give me your game. If I lose your game, I keep that game. So that way, you know, I don't steal your game. You don't just land. You're not nice to third graders. And a friend of mine lent me, you know, did a, a cartridge swap on Zelda 2. And so I never bought it. And part of why I never bought it is like, you can't justify buying a game you've almost beat. I never beat it when I was younger. I never beat Shadow Link, which is embarrassing. We'll talk <laughs> about that in a bit. I never beat Shadow Link, but it's like, I can't justify purchasing this game when if I get the, the budget to buy a new game, I buy another one, but I just loved it. And then of course, rediscovered it when I got older and was just like, so I think, I think that's where it has the fondest. It was one of my favorite games, but I never owned it when I was younger. And then I get older and I'm like, oh, I can own this game. It's awesome. Yeah. You're, you're really right about the, the cartridge expenses too. Cause you got to remember too, these games were about 60 bucks a piece. These were, I remember getting a lot of like Christmas and birthday ones. Christmas tended to be more $20 cartridges. So you'd be like, oh, I got Star Force. Okay. But then my mom would always do this thing where at the, at the end of school, she would get us a game. And then for birthdays, we would usually get like a decent game, like a, a higher end game. And so Link was one of those ones that I think we got as a school gift. Or Zelda, you were saying, you said oh, like yeah. you, you rented. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, we had, well, we had rented Link first, but then we eventually got it. So oh, I right. knew we, because we, we rented it for like two days and we were, you know, eight years old, seven, eight years old. Like you're not going to get that far in that game when you're trying to figure it out and there's no internet to give you like a walkthrough or anything. So realistically speaking, like we, we wanted it. We wanted that game. I think I liked it a little bit more because it was side scrolling. I think about that a lot. My brother and I have some different things. My brother was a Zelda one. I was a Zelda two. My brother was Transformers and I was GI Joe. The, the stuff that I always was more into seems to be more simple and less technical. Zelda has a sort of, the original Zelda has a much more technical overhead map. It, it kind of reminds me more of a technical game as opposed to the standard side-scrolling kind of bashing energy that you get from Link. Am Although, I stretching on that? Maybe. Oh, no, no. But what I would say is fascinating is, is, is Zelda 2 definitely does have a lot of the puzzle-solving elements. And actually, that was a thing I missed when I was younger and you kind of get when you're older is to get through Zelda 2, a lot of the game is being clever about like the magic spells you use. Mm-hmm. So shield is, is really, really important because it actually blocks fire. So it can make some bosses hyper, hyper easy. Can I, or, can I, can I ask a question right now? Yeah. Really? I'm yeah, just so finding well. that out now. Oh, and I, I got it wrong. Reflect, reflect blocks fire. Okay. Shield halves the damage. So for some of the later bosses, for instance, the second to last boss, the firebird, if you have reflect plus shield on, that boss is cake. 
Whereas if you don't, it seems like this impossible thing spewing fire. And I didn't realize when I was younger, if you put on reflect, you get rid of fire. And this might be, you know, kind of noting pre-internet, this was a Nintendo power game. Huge shout out to one of your compatriots, Alex Schmidt, who actually did do an episode on The Legend of Zelda. But they mentioned that that Nintendo Power kind of came about in response to Zelda because they were like, no one's going to be able to solve this. And in prep for this shot, I was looking through some of the first couple of episodes because Nintendo Power 4 is the the adventure of Link. The poster I've got in my background that as we're talking is from that episode. And what's really fascinating is you kind of need a a walkthrough to beat the game unless you're going to bash your head against the wall. But I would argue this walkthrough actually leaves out one of the most important parts because there's a part called Death Mountain. We have to walk through these interlocking caves. Now, the trick to do you know the trick to to Death Mountain? You've beaten it, so you have to. I mean, I don't know the trick off the top of my head. I'm I'm very trial and error in this regard. Oh my god! So you okay? So in Death Mountain, the trick is you don't go on any elevators and you always go down and to the right. Are you telling me you you've beaten this game? You've beaten Death Mountain without just knowing you go down and to the right in that that little that little cave area where they're like the interlocking caves. Yeah, that's correct. Oh my god, that's. You, you win some nerd points there, Jeff. That is that is remarkable. I like the exploration part. I'm one of those people that likes to cover every part and see if there's any hidden pee bags or, or you know, heart containers or, you know. It's one of those things where I just kind of like to explore a little bit and trial and error. Like in every, even, because spoiler alert, I just played the second quest. There's no second quest. It's a one. And even though I had already gone through the game and had all, all my spells and everything like that i was still going and checking out every chamber of every room because i'm interested in that and i played it on the nes classic when the pandemic started one of the first things i did was beat link like broke it out and played it again and i was like well we have time now yeah Zelda two i mean this this is blowing my mind though that you you kind of just beat it exploratorily i'll use this as a brief place to to kind of brag about a nerdy thing I've done, Jeff, because this seems like the right spot for it. So as you noted, there's a second quest on the first Legend of Zelda. The cool part is both Legend of Zelda and The Adventure of Link had memory on the cartridge, which was a huge breakthrough because a lot of old games like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like Super Mario Brothers, you just had to beat them. And if you didn't beat them, tough luck. I don't know if you ever did this. I would leave leave the Nintendo on overnight to not lose a save. Now, games like Mega Man would have save points and like Castlevania, but you would have to enter the game and enter a code. You have to enter like a a, a 64 character code or like a grid in different colors. It was so weird. Yeah, it was. But I mean, that's that's what you have to do. Whereas Zelda and Zelda 2, you were able to just die, save, and turn the game off Mm -hmm. and then come right back to where, where you were at before. So because they had that memory, they also had enough so that they when they finished Zelda 1, they were like, we've got too much. And they're like, well, what do we do? They're like, well, why don't we just Take the same game. We have the, the system to make these maps. Let's just do it again. Let's just, you know, you can play the game again, but the, the mazes are in different configurations. They're in different spots. You know, the items aren't in the same place. It's a fun second playthrough. They did the same thing on Zelda 2, but all that happens is however leveled you were when you finished, you start the game over. And that makes it easier, right? Because you start as no level the first time through. And the second time through, you're like, I've got all the spells. I'm hyper maxed up. I can kill everything in one shot. Yeah. It's it, when, as I was playing it, I was like, I'm bored as shit through here because like you're going into the first you're going into the first, you know, the, the first temple and, you know, you're fighting the horse head and he dies in like two shots. Yeah. And well, and so, by the way, here's what nerds like me do, Jeff. So I made a challenge for myself on this game. 
Mm-hmm. So it turns out you can get through you can you can get to the game without ever using a key because there is a master key towards the end of the game that unlocks every door. Mm-hmm. You are allowed to get through any door using the fairy spell. So it is possible for you to go collect the fairy spell and then go through every single dungeon using the fairy, pick up all the items, get to the master key, and then you can collect every key in the game. And I think you end the game with the V keys, which I did for fun. That was enough. I'm a geek, Jeff. I went even further. I was like, I counted all the pee bags in the game. Mm-hmm. I counted, I counted all the extra lives. And I was like, okay, I want to make it all the way through this game without technically losing a life, collecting all the pee bags. This is a silly one, meaning I had to end the game with the number, with at least the level of experience you would get from all the pee bags without going over and getting all the keys. And this is what you do when you're older. You just make foolish challenges for yourself. The importance of the second quest is really that when it flips over, it tells you how many continues you've used. So if you want to prove that you have beaten the game without using a continue, the only value of the second quest is because you're able to start up again and show you've used no continues. (laughs) There you go. So one of the things that I want to get into is sort of like the history of the game's developments, because I actually did, I did a lot of research. I mean, you provided me with some links for research, and I did do some more research as well into seeing some of the differences between the Japanese port, the Japanese version and the American version. One of the things I think that it's important to note, and something that I don't know if a lot of Americans are aware of, is that the NES system in, in Japan, the Famicom system is not a cartridge-based system. It's a disc-based system. So it has a similar look to like the three by five floppy disks that we would use in like the early 90s. How much of your audience do you think remembers that? Because I was was thinking about talking about that and being like, oh, you know, a floppy disk you put in your computer and like, that's not a thing anymore. I think some, I think think I'm about half of that. It's pre-CD. So I'm going to guess that almost all of my listeners are aware of CDs. That I would say is probably a thing that they're going to be aware of and that CD-ROM systems. I remember we got our first one around 1993 or 94. Thanks to my mom's boyfriend at the time. That was a big computer guy because we would have never been able to afford that ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was a lot of like, you see, when you see graphics in games like Star Fox on the Super Nintendo, that's a lot of, it was a lot of polygonal like shapes and movements and and CD stuff. And then you, but you would also have like video quality interstitials and stuff like that. But that wasn't what we had in, in America. It was cartridges. And in, in Japan, you had discs. One of the things that's different is the sound choices that they make in Japan are surprisingly very different than America. We're terrible. Like there's a boss where like every time he hits you, it's like a loud screech. He, he screams and it's terrifying and awesome. And it, but it's like, why would you like who, who got through one playthrough of that and was like, this is a good, good experience to just, yeah, I like that. Oh my, <laughs> I meant to that, that like screaming aspect of it. I, I always loved, I always loved the screaming, like in Zelda one, when you could hear the 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 cave monster in the next room and you could hear him screaming like i actually really enjoyed that well that Um, fame scream was actually when you when the game used to end ganon would scream that here's a fun bit of trivia let's see if you know this one do you know what sound they replaced ganon with at the end when you die so it was originally an elephant trumpet and they replaced it with i believe it was soda popinski's laugh I think it's Bald Bull, but I, oh, okay, actually, I think you win. I think you win geek points because I think it's Bald Bull's laugh, but I think they use the same. Because, like, again, you're talking, this was cartridge-based, disc-based systems. They didn't have all the memory, so they would just, like, reuse sounds. It's like, okay, 
and we're talking Mike Tyson's punch out there. Yeah. Mike Tyson's punch out reuses the body type for multiple boxers because they don't have, they don't have the graphics to make a, a unique body type for each boxer. Yeah. So if you look through, they reuse them, which is, yeah. And we're talking, yeah, they have about four skins, skins total. Yeah. Yeah. And it is very funny to see how that goes through some improvements. Some, some things are a little bit different. I know the Japanese port has moving backgrounds in the overhead world. So anything that's liquid, the water and the lava, they have a slight movement to them. Their sprites are animated. Whereas in the NES version, they're like, that's unnecessary. People will get it. Um, oh, and it could have, it could have slowed things. I mean, that's, they also, one thing between Japanese and U.S. is they tried to fix bugs. And this is very classic in old school video games. They tried to fix bugs and introduced new bugs. I didn't new know bugs, we were going to yeah. get to this on the script, Jeff. But like, I can talk speedrunning Zelda 2 as an amateur. But there mm -hmm. are like people that are awesome at it. You sent me a link of a video, about 30 minute longs of like code. And it might as well have been in Greek. <laughs> it was very interesting to watch, but I was like, man, I got no idea what's going on. But that brought me down my own personal kind of rabbit hole where I started to look at, you know, the differences and the changing, for example, in religious iconography. Oh, yeah, because they had rules about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Nintendo of America was very big on sort of not using religious iconography. It was very it's famously in like ghouls and ghosts or ghosts and goblins, excuse me, that they pulled a lot of the crucifixes. I believe even Castlevania had some pulled away. There's from Castlevania, like, which is but, weird, but, right? <laughs> yeah. But so one of the things is like there's the trophy was actually the goddess statue and it was a little bit more whatever there. Some of the churches had crucifixes on the top in Japan and they were replaced with a more sort of without saying the phrasing with the negative connotations an iron cross like cross. That's interesting because I was going to say one of the items you get is a cross, which you need to get through like a cemetery. So it is fascinating to be like, well, we can't have any religious iconography except for, you know, that part that 100% needs it. They really, they really go for it. But although I will say that where you get the, where you get in the cemetery, there's the king's tomb in Japan is dark and creepy. And in America, it's well lit with a mourner there. An old woman mourner yeah. is there, which also jarred me when I was a kid. Cause you, anytime you'd be involved in the graveyard battles, it was always dark, but at king's tomb, it was light. I never understood that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, the key of that is it, it lets you know which direction to go and it does have like a health thing. So I guess, but it doesn't, you're right. It doesn't make sense in that. And the, the other thing was it used to be that when you would get items in Japan, you would strike them the way you strike keys, but they changed that primarily because at one level, there's a kidnapped child that you have to rescue. <laughs> and it looks like in Japan, you're stabbing the kid. Well, I think, well, interesting, because I mentioned my little fun challenge of like getting all the keys. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually part of it is because you can pick up keys. You can pick up items as a fairy, and that is key to being able to do that. And so I think that might be a good, because there was another thing where if you're a fairy and you go to the top of the screen in Japan, if you went up, it caused a glitch. Mm -hmm. So they tried to fix that glitch. And what actually happens now is Link can jump through the top of a screen and go into, like, he can teleport across the map and basically break the physics of the world. And you're talking about code video, they talk that because, you know, as much as it looks like a normal game, it's very D and D like, right. There's, you know, a, uh, a dungeon master in this case, that'd be the computer that's going through and just writing down a bunch of numbers. And based on those numbers tells you what's going on in the game. And 
what is so fun about old Nintendo games, I, I'm not someone who does this, but there are people who do. It's so fun to watch on YouTube. They're like, oh yeah, it turns out when you knock this turtle in Super Mario Brothers 3, you change the register value here, which is red in the next scene. And if you get it to this, it's fake. And that causes every, and like, that is just, that was that a wild part of That's wild to me, that stuff. It, it does. I mean, and I'm a, we were talking this, you like, I sent you a code video and you're like, it's Greek. I watched, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool, pretty straightforward, a lot of stuff. But there are like hacks in old video games to me as a coder, because I'm like a second generation coder. I'm not the old school person that coded Nintendo games. I'm the person who grew up the generation after when a lot of the tools got better for that. And even I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I've, I've watched a couple of speed runs out of, I've watched speed runs out of curiosity. I remember my friends and I used to do like little speed run challenges of Super Mario Brothers because I had my NES in college. I brought it with me and we were already a few generations past the NES, but it was so great. And I think we had gotten it into like the six minute range. Like that's around where we so we would beat Super Mario Brothers in about six minutes. Oh, because you can do the the what the double warp. So you can warp, you get the warp in the first level and then you get the second warp. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I remember I watched a speed run like the other day and it was like half that. And I was it just I was like, what? the? And it was showing all these like little glitch moves and people walking through the walls and figuring it out. And I was like, oh, this is just like a totally different world that I'm not going to try to figure out here. Yeah, it's breaking the matrix, which is, yeah, because that's what you, and that's the thing is, what is really fun to realize about old video games is exactly that, is that they kind of have to cheat because they don't, like, your modern web browser that you and I are both using has so much memory, so much power for any developer to use. Those old games do not have that, so they have to do, like, little hacks and cheats, and so they're not even, like, checking, like, various games like Super Mario, like Legend of Zelda, like Mega Man, they don't actually check for all the stuff you think they're checking and so if you hack around it you can like teleport through walls and stuff yeah it's weird to me i'm to me and i know that's stupid but i'm like i'm watching and be like that's cheating and it's like kind of yeah like all right all right i actually i I didn't think i was going to get a chance to get this in but i'm going to throw this to you because in these speed runs there are things called like glitchless runs exactly what you're saying they're saying you cannot abuse a glitch to beat the game so can you beat the game clean or the glitch I told you about the fairy spell, which is you can go through any door in the game as a fairy. You could argue that's a glitch. Now, I have a very nerd canon thing in my head I came up with for this. So I'm going to let Jeff be the judge rule on this. My argument is the doors in Zelda 2 are not real doors like we think of, like with a key, even though you use a key. I mean, are are you sure about that? Well, okay, I think I'm going to lose, but I'll still go for it. (laughs) Don't bullshit on me at the end of this, Jeff, and we'll edit that out, right? That's what we do. You can go through the door and use a key, but I argue it's a spell. So I argue that each door in the game is a spell, that the key is like an artifact that takes the spell off. That's why the master key works. It can, it can, it can take the spell off any door. So it is not a glitch to go through the door as the fairy. You're going through the keyhole because you're small enough. The reason the door, go ahead. But the reason the door goes down, if you have, so here's the, here's the possible fly to get to. If you are a fairy and you are holding a key when you go through a door, it uses the key. But my argument is that's because it's a spell. It can detect the key. It uses it as a spell. It decasts the door, but it's not a glitch to go through the door as a fairy because you're just small enough to fit through the hole. I mean, that's fair enough, I guess. So if I was on bullshit, I got asked that. If I was on bullshit and I had to like sell that to you and I just did what I did, is Jeff calling bullshit or is Jeff letting it go? I'd call bullshit mainly because Uh, I'd be like, doors aren't spells. There's a reason there's a key there. 
Yeah. Um, like turtles don't fall on people's head, Jeff. Yeah, no, I get it. It's also a video game. No, like I guess <laughs> so I get that. It's it's fiction. Speaking of fiction, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the very confusing sort of fictional backstory of Zelda and Zelda 2 because I'm there's a there's a beautiful book. It's a hardcover book that sort of is like the history of Hyrule kind of a thing. I see like you're reaching over to get it. So I'm pretty sure you have it. Now, granted, you have a skin on your Zoom, so I can't actually see the goddamn thing. But I'm going to guess that you have it. I It's like a $65 book. I almost bought it, but I'm so not invested in the world of Zelda that I was like, eh. Like, I was like, do I need to, I don't need to spend $60 on this. But from what I understand, there's a reason there has to be a 300-page hardcover history of Hyrule book. Well, okay, let's let's throw two things out that I really like, Jeff. So I, I have that, and even not being invested, I'm looking behind you, and you have a billion books. Mm-hmm. And I'll say you and I are very similar in age, very similar in era, and you hit a certain point in life where you have so much stuff, and you're like, even if you like it, like I like it, I'm 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 Zelda'd out. I'm buying Zelda trinkets because I have so many. I'm getting old, which is why I'll actually throw out like your podcasts, you know, you game for unemployed, small beans. They're wonderful things for collectors like me. Cause it's like, if you have a little disposable income that you would spend waste on like a Ganon statue, you're like, I want something that's cool. That's related to my nerdy interests. That's not going to take up space in my house. And yeah, so I'll throw that out there. That, 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 that qualifies as this. Cause I did buy it and even I'm like, yeah, it's too much. But yeah, so there, there are the Zelda games, I think originally we're just kind of sold as, hey, you're allowed to do different adventures with the same character. This is very Japanese. Like this happens in like anime and stuff, right? Where like Tenchi Moyo, I remember is a series where they would just reboot it every couple of years. And it's just like, oh yeah, these are the same characters, but it's a different universe. It's a different story, which makes a lot of sense. Because for instance, if you look at say Batman, by the time you've got a couple of years with the continuity of Batman, it's like there've been like four genocides in, you know, <laughs> four genocides in uh, Gotham, all this other stuff. So it does make a lot of sense to kind of just say, do your own thing. But they tried to make a timeline that explained all of the different Zelda games, because by 2011, I think there were 10 to 15, somewhere in that range. And what makes Zelda two the most fascinating is two parts. It is officially like an alternate dimension because a game I'd be really curious to see you, Jeff, because you said you might start twitching. I'd be really interested to see you play Ocarina of Time, which I've never played. Yeah. I would like to say I'm aware that that's considered one of the greatest video games of all time. And I, I, I'm also aware that it can hit, it can miss you. We were talking college. Like I remember getting that right near the end of high school and I can understand it just like time ago. I, I saw a friend play that game and like took a bus and bought it at a, you know, big box store new because just blew my mind so much. It is an amazing game, but I'd be interested to see you play it just to see how you'd react to Navi and your, your, your fans will probably. Is that the, is that the listen? Oh my God. Like, yeah, if you were playing that live in front of people, like, it's fine. I had those few times, but I had a friend that had that as his text message ringtone. Yeah. And after like the third time, I was like, I'm going to throw your fucking phone into the river. Like, I was just, I I couldn't listen. Just imagine you're playing a game. Imagine you're playing the greatest game of all time at the Mm -hmm. time. And again, on the Alex Schmidt podcast, a secretly incredibly fascinating. They bring up that's like the top rated Metacritic game of all time. Mm-hmm. And imagine playing that game, but the downside being there's this little annoying listen that pops up all the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. That came out because <laughs> that was around what, like 2001? A little earlier. Cause I know I got it in high school and I graduated at one. Okay. Cause 
so like around that time i was much more heavily invested in first off i had started boxing in in 2000 in in the fall of 2000 i was really heavily playing the star wars customizable card game as well as magic the gathering video games were mostly what i would do like in college i would have like an old nes and i had an n64 but i I didn't really get any any game that I was going to require hours to sit down. I just didn't have the energy for. Now, that being said, I had a friend that had that game and he lost a job because of it. That makes sense. That, just, that actually tracks out. Yeah. He just called in, but he would do shit like he would get instruments and he would learn how to play modern rock songs on the instruments. So he would play because there's like you can get instruments and play them using the keys, right? Oh, and the yeah, I mean, you use the ocarina, and I think there might be another one where you could plug those in. So you're saying like he would in game in in ocarina of time use the instruments in the game to play other songs because I mean they do have musical notes. Yes. Huh. And well, I mean, I, I I can't I can't throw stones. I mean, I'm like I I went through this thing trying to get all the keys as a fairy using a hack, but yeah. But it was very funny to me because he's not he he was just he thought it was funny, and he thought he thought like he's like you get it, and I'm like, dude, did. You just lost your electrician job for this. I mean, I get I, that's what's funny is I'll, I'll 100% get it. And then at the same time, go like, yeah, but there's, you know, you still go to work or whatever. So, I know a dude that failed out of college because of Grand Theft Auto 3. Uh, that was, I, I took a hit on my finals because that came out when I was in college. I definitely took a hit, but even I had like the wherewithal to be like, okay, put it down for a little bit. I've been very lucky to know what not to touch. I, in college, I, I would, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll let you, sorry, I didn't mean to catch up there. I was, like, I was in a dorm with a bunch of people playing World of Warcraft when that came out. And I was in grad school and like, same thing. Like I saw them and I was like, nope. I'm like, if I want to graduate grad school, I cannot come anywhere near. And I mean, that, that, that got nuts where it was, it was a, it was a shared house. And like the internet speed goes down a blip and like four people in the house that were doing a quest would just go wild. So yeah. like you didn't touch the internet. And I was like, I was like, oh no, no. Yeah. Can't do that. I I remember like, so with video games, I would always play stuff that I can be done in 15 minutes to 25 minutes. Want to play a game of NFL Blitz? Let's play a game of NFL Blitz. You want to like NBA Jam or, you know, you want to go to a, a LAN party or, or even eventually you want to play Deathmatch and Halo. Like that's the kind of stuff that I would like to do because there's an out. Whereas these long, these long narrative games, I was, I'm very afraid. It's sort of like, I remember a couple of years ago, I had gotten Skyrim as a Christmas gift for the, for the girl I was seeing. And we would, we were playing like 11 hours a day. And first off, we should have streamed that shit because it was hilarious. But on top of that, I realized I'm like, oh, I got to work. Like... Like, I can't do this. I can't be this invested in, in this long-term narrative. I need something to be like, your game is done. Get the fuck back to work. Which is oh, why... Our by the way, Martin, are, are you long-term planning on doing any Twitch stuff to give, give yourself an excuse to play video games? I think you would briefly mention that at some point. I'm Maybe. Sure. The, the thing that I'm actually looking forward to doing on Twitch in general is actually going to be pack-breaking videos, like trading card things. Apparently, that's a thing. Or YouTube or whatever. But like... Yeah. The, that's a weird form of streaming that I'm actually going to be starting. And I, I've been in contact with a company that's sending me a lot of really cool shit. I also have like scores of packs of trading cards, like right, right above 
Do, do you have any first gen? I, I, I was into Star Wars. It's funny. You, you, you and me, age-wise and interest-wise, were very similar. The difference is in high school, instead of getting into boxing, I got into computer programming. I, I would did boxing for me. I didn't start boxing until... Oh, so I, high, I think junior or senior in high school, I just got into computer programming. And in both high school and college, would ditch other classes to code, which long-term was a good decision, but <laughs> short-term was, was interesting. But I was also into the collectible card game of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So do you have like any of the black, black side packs? Any of those? You, oh, you mean like packs to break? No, I haven't gotten any packs to break yet. I really want to. I've watched a lot of those pack breaking videos. I know this is we're, we're far outside of the Zelda world here, but I've watched a lot of those videos and they don't tend to do well from a viewpoint standard. Like people, it's a very, very niche market of watching. I have a lot of my cards still. Like I have most of the valuable ones. I have a couple of cards that are worth, you know, several hundred dollars. Which is oh, that's actually nice that they went up there because a lot of collectible stuff like the the Kevin Smith show, the uh, the Pawn Stars knockup that was, oh, comic book men. Yeah. One thing that was very cathartic about that show, watching it, was the number of people that would collect things that I had collected that I'd gotten rid of or gotten out of. And they, they'd bring it into the store and he'd be like, oh yeah, this thing you paid $200 for in 1990, it's worth 190 bucks. I have something for you there. So in 2016, I filmed a pilot for a show that was essentially Comic-Con version of Pawn Stars. That's awesome. At, at cons. So it was more of like a fast moving thing. Whereas, you know, a comic book men was designed to be a personality based show. This was sort of more of like an antiques roadshow. That's awesome. And that's actually the way I put it more. We were the more antiques roadshow. My job was the historian. So my job was to go in as a pop culture historian, explain why people should be invested in this, why people should care that we're even looking at this. And at the time, somebody had brought three Pokemon cards, a Charizard, a Blastoise, and a, I believe it was a Wartortle. Wait, no. I feel it would be a Blastoise, a Charizard, and Venusaur, maybe? Yeah, Bulbasaur, the like the final versions okay, of them, and oh, they so were you're talking three. Yeah, okay, gotcha. At the time, they were relatively worthless. The pan, and and I told him I was like, unfortunately, this this market has sort of bottomed out. There isn't that big of a market for the original vintage. The pandemic is what really changed everything in the collectible world. I mean, obviously, there there was a rebound. But that being said, Star Wars has stayed strong even after the Decipher lost the license in 2002. There's been a players committee that has been continuing to make cards. So it's actually an incredibly powerful card game and very expensive to get on the back end. So doing a pack breaking video would be great, but those packs are expensive. Well, I was going to say, I'll, I'll give a shout out to you and Adam Todd Brown with the one of, I think, the side spinoff shows of You Don't Even Like Sports with the Ken Griffey Rookie Junior card, where that, that was just mind blowing how it broke, how that destroyed the baseball card industry. Oh, yeah. So, oh, do you actually have one? Do you have no, a Griffey? I have the Jose Canseco 86 Donruss. Do you want to tell the backstory about what happened with that? That was fun on Twitter. I always wanted this card. And so I finally, a fan had sent it to me and I, I was like, I'm going to get this graded because spoiler alert, when fans send me crap, I keep it. I'm still at that level of <laughs> my thing where if it gets sent, I'm like, I'm keeping this because it means a lot to me that somebody 
saw something, thought of me, who is essentially a stranger, and sent it to me. So they sent me a Jose Canseco as well as a Don West autographed card. And Don West is the guy that used to sell trading cards on on like home shopping, not home shopping, but whatever it was. Yeah. And I he used to be like, back to Ken Griffin rookie card. And he used to like scream that out. And so somebody had sent this to me. So I got them graded. And the FedEx driver like showed up and suspiciously was like, yeah, man, your box is empty. I don't know what's going on. And then I was like really upset. And I'm like, you know, these are sentimental. They're not really worth anything. I was really upset. And but like it was really upsetting. And then I was having a big problem with CSG, who I'm never going to use again for card grading. Uh, And they were like, well, you know, it's we did our job. I'm like, how can you even prove that? There's no proof that you actually did your job. Like I have an empty box. And they're like, you have to go through FedEx. And it was a whole, a whole problem. The driver came back the next day and he miraculously found the cards. And I think he realized that he knew I was going to really push. Because you had gone to like Twitter too and were like tagging FedEx. You were, I wasn't you going to let this one go. If it was just cards that I want, I thought were going to be worth money, I would have just claimed my insurance. But these were cards that were gifted to me from a fan. And that to me is like an inexcusable mistake to to screw that up. So I was going to push it until those cards were found. Took 24 it's, hours. That's awesome. They're fan. Like I said, with the car, a Star Wars customizable card game, that's that's great that it's actually like, because you need a strong committee that's not going to like Bitcoin it and screw everything up. Mm-hmm. That's really cool to hear. That would be something fun to hear on another show at some point. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I had no idea how to get a spit. So we were talking kind of the history. So yes, I'm not trying to expect it. So it's, and it's essentially, we're talking multiverse shit. Yeah. And so this, this gets wild for two reasons. So Zelda has a multiverse and then they, with Breath of the Wild, they screwed everything up. They're just like, it's all of, it's the sequel to all of them. There, there are three Zelda timelines that are caused by Ocarina of Time. And Breath of the Wild's like, we're the sequel to all of them. And you can't really prove otherwise. There are lots of fun videos on that. But what makes it interesting is this game, Zelda 2, takes place in a future where, where Link loses, where Link and Zelda are defeated in Ocarina of Time, which is just fascinating. It's fascinating, like, the two, two of the most acclaimed games in the series, after the fact, kind of very George Lucas-like, they went back and were like, those are like dreams. They didn't happen. Like, really? Yeah. So this, this, this is where everything goes bad. Now, here's where it gets interesting, Jeff. Now, this game is the follow-up to Zelda 1, or The Legend of Zelda. Now, in this game, you are trying to cure Princess Zelda, but it is a different Princess Zelda than the first Zelda game. That, which to is just, me, is weird. Yeah, okay. And so, this, I think there'll be a nice out for, like, advertising stuff and talking, like, commercials and possibly even The Wizard. I think, I think we still got that. Yeah. So, in this, in this game, the first Legend of Zelda is there are two Triforces, the Triforce of Courage, the Triforce of Wisdom. Zelda's got the Wisdom one, Ganon's got the power, power, not Courage power. So Ganon's using the power one to just come through Hyrule and take over, and Zelda's losing. And so she's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, you got to make a game somehow. I'm going to take the Triforce of Wisdom, I'm going to break it up into eight pieces, I believe, put it in castles all over the the kingdom. I'm going to send my super ancient maid out to find someone to defeat Ganon, and Ganon can't kill me because he needs me to know where the Triforce is. So he captures her. Her maid gets captured immediately. And a little boy without a sword rescues her. And she's like, you, you need to go defeat the most powerful like, mage of the land who has just destroyed everything. Which is absolutely, you know, absolutely wild. 
Yeah. Now, of course, he, he manages to do it. The joke I have is like, this family is a family of Leslie Nopes, because we'll find it until the two, the same idea comes about. Be like, I'm going to break this up and all of these complicated puzzles and games to solve things. That's what happened. So that's the end of, of The Legend of Zelda. Link finds all the pieces of the Triforce of Wisdom, fights Ganon, defeats Ganon. Now they have both Triforces. They're good. So there was the Triforce of Courage in the first game. Zelda 2, Link wakes up. He's 16 years old. He's got a little Triforce icon that shows up on the back of his wrist. Nampa, same lady from the first game, is like, oh my goodness, you're special. Takes him to a room, opens it up. There is another Zelda in that room who's in a, a deep sleep. What a weird, it's like he got a weird stamp at a bar that gets him into the VIP room. And then the room is just, it's like a maybe dead girl in it. I, I really like that description. And if you look at like the images of it, it looks like that. That's what's funny is it's a drawn picture. And if you look at the, the image that shows up on his hands, it's in like the textbooks or, or the instruction manuals. Mm-hmm. It's cheap. It literally looks like a bar stamp. You're not wrong. That's awesome. They, they also use it in the Japanese commercial. They put it on a on a child, and then that child is introduced to the world of Zelda too. So they they brought that canonical storyline into the advertising aspect. And I a hundred percent want to talk in a, in a little bit. I want to talk the what Japan did with their ads for Zelda two, and what the United States and the Wizard did for Zelda two advertising. <laughs> but okay, so goes in. There's there's just a princess, uh, a sweet princess, and the backstory is there once was a king had all three triforces: wisdom, courage, power. He's going to die. He's like, this is too much to give to my children. So I'm going to hide one. Again, Leslie Nopes it says, Here, here's the trick. I'm going to hide the, the Triforce of Courage in this palace. I'm going to hide. To unlock that palace, you have to put crystals in six other palaces. And so that's how you have to get it. And he tells Zelda this. He doesn't tell his son. His son is like, I want the Triforce. Zelda, tell me where the Triforce is. She says no. He gets a wizard to try and beat it out of her, basically. That's what's in the mm-hmm. thing. He casts a sleeping, he casts a spell on her. It backfires. It puts her in an infinite sleep and it kills the wizard. And the brother's like, I feel really bad about this. So I'm going to put. That is, so, <laughs> that is so jarring and dark. That is the ultimate mistake. They're just like, oh yeah. You're like, yeah. I, I, you're like, oh, whatever. So yeah. And, and he's the, like, the don't worry. Down. I got a wizard to take care of it. And then immediately he's like, oh shit. Yeah. So he decrees all future princesses will be named Zelda. So that's why our Zelda in the future is named Zelda. He puts his Zelda in a locked room and says, some point in the future, that's what this family does. The Zelda family basically says, someone else will figure out this really complicated riddle maze. And that's where, where Link comes in. So that's the start of the game. And I think it's key because at no point in this game does Link have to find or rescue Zelda. He's basically going to get a cure because he has to get the Triforce of Courage to put the Triforce back together to cure Zelda, who's in this infinite sleep. Mm-hmm. Additionally, though, this is where it does tie in the first game. In the first game, Ganon's defeated. But his minions go, hey, we discovered a loophole, I guess. If we sprinkle Link's ashes on the blood of Ganon, he comes back to life. So basically, Link should really be lying low right now. However, Impa's like, you know what you need to do? You need to go all across Hyrule. Like The entire thing. If you're going to Jeff May, you need to go every nook and cranny across Hyrule to bring back this princess that's just been locked in a room back there for like hundreds of years. Perfect. No notes. <laughs> now, it, it is really an interesting thing where they're they're going so far out of their way to sort of be like, hey, you, this is how you deal with the problem. And then it's clearly, but this is also how the problem gets way worse, right? 
Yeah, it's like, it's like, here's what you shouldn't do. And they're like, okay. And they're like, by the way, you need to solve the subject problem. Here's what you do. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's a fun, you, it, you know, that's what was very interesting about old Nintendo games was you have to have some weird backstory as to why there is this sprawling world for you to go through. At the same time, as you think about it for like two seconds, you're like, this makes no sense. Well, that's a very Japanese way of viewing it too, is just them being like, why are you worried about this aspect of it? Just fucking play the game. Well, yeah, that is very true. Like that's true of movies. Like if you do it well, the little nitpicky things that, you know, 40 year olds, two decades later are complaining about, they're like, you know, we're ranked 12th all time on the Nintendo game. Like we're one of the best games ever. Have I do fun love that. that American aspect of like complaining about a specific problem or whatever and like everybody else is just like what the hell are you talking about just enjoy it why do you need everything to to be such a stupid how do i put it why does everything need to be described to you in explicit detail i think a good example of that is like when you saw avengers 2 come out at the same time as mad max fury road and mad max was just being like you guys can figure it out and in Avengers 2, they were like, here's how every science aspect of this whole thing works. And it's like, is that what we needed? We just can just, just enjoy the movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. Trust, and, trusting the audience is fine. And Japan, I think, does a bit of a better job at that. And that was, okay, so by the way, Jeff, let's, let's get into another history, history of video games aspect of this that I think is fascinating. Hopefully, hopefully you'll find it entertaining. Yeah. And it relates to the movie The Wizard. So you mentioned the gap between Zelda 1 and Zelda 2. That was unintentional. Because as you mentioned, in Japan, they use discs. In the United States, they use cartridges. The reason they used cartridges in the United States was to prevent piracy because discs are easy. You just throw them on a computer, you copy them. They're like, don't do that. So they use the cartridge system. There was a shortage on ROM chips that were required to make the cartridges. So Nintendo had a gap where they had all of these games prepared to come over to the US that they weren't able to ship. There was a delay on them. At the same time this is happening, a movie is in production called The Wizard. And the wizard is about Christian Slater of course. Well, that's, so that's, what's key is that this is an indie movie. It's not supposed to be anything, but the movie manages to get boat bridges. I believe Christian Slater had recently worked and was like, I want to work with this guy. I'll work cheap. It also managed to get Fred Savage, who was like a huge star on the wonder years at the time. So this was an indie film that just kind of lucked into a bunch of stars that just wanted to do it because they liked each other and future musicians. Oh yeah. So who's the. It's a Jenny. Uh, oh, Jenny Lewis. So rather come. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Jenny, like, Jenny Lewis it, is the official. I was going to say she's not really. I mean, I guess she's technically kind of a love interest, but. We're going to actually, I, I didn't think I was going to talk that much, but the, the two aspects of Zelda two that show in that game do show the romantic interest. So that's actually going to come up. Impressive job. All right. <laughs> you know where it was going. Okay. So at the same time, Nintendo's got the shortage. They've got Fred Savage, but Fred Savage is on like a break from the Wonder Years. So like you can make this movie. You can have Fred Savage if you get it done quick. And at the same time, they go up to Nintendo and are like, can we license some of your games for this movie? And Nintendo's got a chip shortage. Like, are you telling me there is a, a, a big movie coming out where we can just promote all of our products that are coming out that we're not allowed to sell? This is genius. Yeah. Now you might think, oh my goodness, how that panned out for Nintendo, which is true. But don't forget at this time, like Nintendo go ahead of the... John Leguizamo, Bob Hoskins, Super Mario Brothers. So they, they, nice. they didn't know cinema that well. Amazing. Movie. Oh, no. I guess we're saying it's bad. Never mind. Oh, did you like it? It was a good movie. I saw oh, that. It's in not. Theaters. It's, it's, it's bad. I, I, want my, I saw that in He Man in theaters, and I, I still want my money back. He Man is. I have opinions about the He Man movie. 
that might come that might actually come up on a future show. We'll see we'll see what you're you're interested in. I, right. I, I, I don't think it's as bad as people give it credit for. Did did you do a best bad movie or whatever on, on the sure did. about it? I would have to look that up because I think it might be out of out of rotation. But I sure did. So yeah, it's funny, like The Wizard is a great movie. It, it, the Wizard is a movie. Let me rephrase it. The Wizard is a 90 minute commercial for Nintendo. It is something were you obsessed with it as a kid trying to get it you couldn't get a copy of it at the rental place it was out every time hmm. i remember seeing it in theaters for one reason or another and always liked it mm -hmm. i don't recall having like i maybe it was on you know abc or something at some point i you know recorded it to something i never had a problem renting it i did really like it i wasn't other shout out i i did sponsor a small beans podcast on the wizard where they discuss it i believe abe says that he actually wore through his copy of the wizard like he just watched it so many times it's so funny because it's it's an objectively not great movie but it is such a it's sort of like ninja turtles 2 secret of the ooze mm, that's a good one we remember it being better than it is and when you watch it again there's almost like a a sort of lying aspect to 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 the enjoyment where you're like oh man it's just as good as it always was and it's like it it was it was never that good i have to i have to didn't think i was gonna hit this in either but i have to shout that out where so as noted you all are awesome on the various podcasts especially i'm so glad you've hopped into the game of letting people produce them this is you 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 under this is what you do jeff you undercharge because I think at one point you were asking fans for advice and you're like, maybe I'll do like gamefully unemployed and small beans and do sponsored podcasts. And it's like, that is a great idea, Jeff. And then you're like, what if I let you co-host it at the same price? And I was like, what are you doing, Jeff? But I'll, I'll no, make it. I like that aspect of it to be hundred percent honest. Like that's my favorite part because it, it, spoiler alert, that takes some of the onus off of me. If I'm letting you host it, then it's going to be something that you're very interested in, which takes a lot of that the 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 journey in i know a lot of other podcasters are not necessarily comfortable with somebody that might not be a like a regular podcaster doing their show i don't give a shit i'm well, there i mean we we know this about you i mean jeff has cool friends is an amazing podcast you go to all the cons you you know what you're doing here yeah yeah no like the talent is 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 hosting like i generally kind of show up to do that and also that a lot of that has to do with the fact that i have very strong co-hosts that are very good at what they do oh 100 so like when i say that it's basically because i'm lucky enough to work with people like adam todd brown and tom ryman oh those are fantastic and yeah. i mean we can keep plugging your shows which we should like <laughs> jeff has cool for i mean jeff has cool friends i'd assume if you're here you already know that but like tom and jeff watch batman is, is worth the the price of admission so easily so if they're not subscribed to that what are you doing there are it's funny because jeff has cool friends is my baby but i look at the other I look at a couple of the other shows that I do and it's like somebody asked me if I liked you don't even like sports or or Tom and Jeff watch Batman more. And I was like, I could never pick between those two because those are two of my favorite shows. No, I can't do it. That's I, I agree. I, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a huge Batman fan. They're, they're both amazing. And the description of you don't even like sports as, you know, ESPN's 30 for 30, but like funnier. Is is so spot. That's a great yeah, it's, show. A, it's a comedy thirty for thirty, and it's it's designed for people that hate sports, which is I think you know a lot of people are afraid of it. But I always refer to it like it's it's your favorite podcaster's favorite podcast. The going back to the Zelda thing because we are getting a little bit off on there. The the multiverse aspect of them 
having to like make it all make sense. That seems like Japan making concessions for America. I think that is true. I think I've heard that some, some of that came from like fan theories online that were trying to explain like, where does this take place? Where does that take place? And then I, I actually did want to kind of finish it, wrap the, the wizard where it's, it's interesting where the same idea where this fascinating dichotomy between a game that's released one place and marketed one way, one place comes over to another country later and is marketed completely different. So the wizard, by the way, I'll give this the brief defense and say it was a 90 minute Nintendo commercial, but unintentionally, they just wanted to license the product and like Nintendo gave it all to them. And they're like, well, we got to use it. And there are lots of funny issues where it's really hard to videotape cathode ray tubes. People, you were talking discs and cathode ray tubes, Joe. Well, like a cathode ray tube, it has like a little line that scans across. So if you try and put that on camera, it flickers. Mm-hmm. So if you are trying to record a live action scene of someone playing a video game, it's actually really hard to do for them to do it live. The trick they got around that is they did pre-recorded and were able to project them. But then that means the person isn't actually playing the game. And that was some of the the criticism the movie got. And then at the what same a stupid time, they, criticism that is, by the way. Roger Roger Ebert did it. He's wrong. And at this point, I'm gonna I'll save that for like a tweet rant as to why his argument there is entirely wrong. It's like, dude, it's movies. Yeah. Well, and also, well, the argument he has is like, he's not talking about the place he is in the game, which is true, but I can argue that the dialogue he's using is correct. But what is, why would he want, why would he care? Like that's the other part about that too, is like how I get, I like, I get it. You're Roger Ebert. You have to review this. So you have to like come at it from all angles. But then at the same time, it's like, it would be like watching Braveheart and being like, it just, it doesn't seem like they're actually fighting. It looks like they're acting or it's like, I don't think they're actually fighting. It's like, yeah, no, cause it's a movie. They're not actually fighting. It, it, yeah, it makes complete sense. And then it's like, you don't need them to like the, the whole, like, you know, realistic guns on sets kind of argument. It's like, what do you need? Like, you don't need to endanger humans. And I, I know, I think we're both wrestling fans. It's like, you don't need to endanger humans to make this more realistic. And you have things like wrestling, but regardless but yeah anyway the wizard had that and did the marketing and the, the two different cultures so here's what's passing both the wizard and the u.s marketing when you're talking concessions to the united states there that horrible romantic interest scene you talk he actually mentions zelda and he says zelda to the adventures of link which again he gets it wrong and he says link has to find zelda and again completely wrong doesn't make any that's not the game and jenny lewis actually calls him up and then they kiss it doesn't make any sense but still but then, advertising expert, I'm curious if you've seen these ones. The Zelda 2 commercial in the United States. You brought up the Japanese one, which makes a ton of sense. It follows the game's plot. Girl goes into a game store. She's got a Triforce logo. Guy opens a chasm. Hey, you get to go play Zelda 2 because you're the chosen one, just like in the game. She, she's dressed up like Link with the hat and goes off in an adventure. So it's like, that's the game. The United yep. States has a guy with a mullet. Like Zelda's supposed to be like a small 16-year-old elf-like guy with a hat. It's a 22-year-old Link. It's a 22-year-old, no hat, with a mullet, and he's just running around yelling Zelda. And then even at one point... It's funny because it's really all about the narration. I I actually don't hate the commercial. and But it, it does show... Because when you wrote like you wanted to talk about the difference in the dichotomy of the two commercials, in, in Japan it was you get to play the game and in america it was like you get to be the game that was how i was viewing that where it was a much more immersive experience of showing the actual like the actual guy running around in a dungeon 
like kind of furiously sprinting, trying to figure out what he's doing. And he actually shows up, I think linked to the past, the same person shows up again, but it's also, what I'll, what I'll give this is very, this is very American. So the game's delayed a year. The wizard has full access to the game. The United States film producers of commercials have full access to the game. They're like, you know what this game's about, right? You know, like a little tiny guy with a green hat trying to, you know, find the Triforce of Courage. They're like, got it. Like, what did you get? They're like, oh yeah, Zelda's, you know, Link's trying to save Zelda with a mullet. And you're like, that, that is not what we asked for, but. But it's kind of indirectly, he's trying to save Zelda. He's trying to save her life by doing the task at hand. He's not trying to rescue her from jail. She's not in any danger. She's been in that, she's been in that thing the whole time. She's, you know. Yeah, but you wouldn't say that Sleeping Beauty isn't in need of rescue because she's sleeping. She still needs to be saved. Yeah, but okay, I'll, you know, like in the coma, like she's in a coma. She's not in immediate danger, but that doesn't mean that she should be forgotten and not not saved. The, the whole point of the quest is, in a way, to save her indirectly by going through these tasks and making sure the resurrection of Ganon doesn't happen. All right. Well, well, again, the, the resurrection of Ganon is unrelated, which is the funny part of the game, sure. but I'll give it to you. Yeah, there, there's a reason you did good on a, on a, on a game show where you had to talk yourself through stuff. <laughs> I've had my four points, Jeff. I was going to say, is there anything? I mean, I think the, the only other one I kind of had is we, we already kind of talked this a little about old Nintendo games where this is a hard game and unforgiving in some ways, but then as soon as you get certain things, it's easy. As you mentioned, the second quest is cake. There is a point in the game where you can just get infinite lives if you just stand in one place and just keep throwing fire at this like flying eyeball. And the same, I, I don't know if you remember this in, in Super Mario Brothers, there was a point where you could put a turtle shell on and just hop on it over and over and over. It's again. World 3-1. Yeah. Very nice. That's the so, steps going up to World 3-1 for crown blue square lives. Nice. But yeah, so it's, it's very funny where in classic Nintendo fashion, if you play it straight and follow the rules, it can be very hard and very unforgiving. But as soon as you learn a few tricks, the game's actually easy, including, I mentioned embarrassingly, I didn't beat Shadow Link. The trick to that is you stand in the corner and you just stab. And if you just stand in the corner and stab, it'll just keep walking into your sword and die. It's like Both beating Mr. Thing. X in Kung Fu. I had not played that game. So how's that work? You just, just foot sweep rapidly the whole time and he just walks into your feet. Oh, well, there you go. Um, classic strategy. I will say that there are, I breezed through the entire game, no stress, no problems, no deaths on the second quest until I was taking the lava path. And I fell in so many goddamn lava pits. And I was just like getting so frustrated because when you would have to restart, you start back in the tomb. In, in yeah. Zelda, or the 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 first yeah. castle, the North Castle, or whatever it's called. Yeah, you start right next to Zelda. You know, the one you're trying to find, you literally start in front of her in the game. Yeah. <laughs> so you end up having to go through quite a bit of a walk and a, and a lot of headaches if you die, if you lose your your three lives in by falling into these very fall inable pits, because in the lava thing you have flying eyeballs, um, you have lizard men with the spears that aren't really a problem, but you also have the floating like uh, invincible eyeballs that you can only kill when their eyes are open. There's so many ways you can get hit in the air. And if you get hit in the air, you are fucked. The one out on that is you can cast the fairy spell. But then the rough part of that is that takes a ton of your magic, even later. Because yeah. like the, the spells get progressively cheaper, but a couple of them stay expensive. And I think you get like three fairies and that 
classic Nintendo drop game because a lot of old Nintendo games, right? You would play through the game and, you know, they would drop health or drop magic. Zelda 2, in theory, fairies show up flying around to restore your health. Those are few and far between. Very rare. And every sixth drop, you get a magic re replenish. But to your point, it's so easy to just like, you have to kill, that means you have to kill six enemies in between each time. Is it really is six? Is, is it, it's registered six. as six? Six per screen or six per game? If you kill, the, the sixth enemy you kill will drop an item of some sort, either a pea bag or a magic container. And based on their level, if there are certain levels, they'll drop a 50 pea bag. If there are certain levels, they'll drop a 200. If there are certain levels, they'll drop a blue magic jar. If there are certain levels, they'll drop a red. Yeah. And the red is what you need because that fills you up all the way. But to your point, that means you have to kill six days. And in, that, and in those little areas, I think there are four or five enemies. So it's like, you have to get through, you might have to, if you cast fairy, you can't kill anything. So you have to leave the screen. So that's what makes it so hard. And I agree. Yeah, it, it was very frustrating to deal with that. And as I was going through, I was like, son of a bitch. As I was, as I was playing through it, because I was like, do we, I, it was like smooth coasting the entire beginning of the game, all up until I was like, now it's time to go beat the game. And it became a goddamn nightmare. Um, it was, it was such a pain in the ass because you're just i would be like all right well i'm just gonna cast jump because jump is the cheapest spell and it it did what i could which is avoid the short hop pitfall issue yeah it works for you and still i i there was a couple times where i'd get hit and once you hear that look and you're like ah oh, here it is here yeah, it gotta gotta cast that very quick if you can and i, I yeah that's trying to like tr as i mentioned my plan a little challenge of going through the game of just trying to like do everything that's like the killer is anytime you're over a pit, it's like, doesn't matter how strong you are. doesn't matter how leveled up you are. doesn't matter how well you've done everything. You get hit with something and you're down. And that's classic Nintendo. Yeah, it's, it definitely has a stall hit. So like when you get hit, you get sent back a little bit and you are frozen for a second. It's not a continue. Once you're hit, you can continue moving on and you just flash a little bit. A lot of games did that where you have like a one second recovery of invincibility where you can get through the problem. And this is not the case. A friend of mine and I played through Mega Man 1 and 2. And in Mega Man 2, if you get hit, you're briefly invincible. So you can like step on spikes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mega Man 1 doesn't have that. And it is the most annoying game ever. You get hit, you get fall into a thing of pits and you just die. And there's yeah. nothing you can do. Just Mega Man like, is a nightmare. One of the things that I thought was really funny is you were showing original Legend of Zelda commercials. And one of them you just wrote, you gave me the link and you wrote, what the hell is this? <laughs> And I decided to make a comment before I clicked, which was, and, I, and I'll, I'll say it by where I was, I'm guessing I know what commercial you're talking about before I click on the link. And then I did all caps, Leavers. And it's like, yes, I was right. That commercial has been in my head for the past 33 years. You saw that when it was, when you were younger. Yes. Holy cow. And my brother and I used to like pee hats, like yell that at each other all the time. And, you know, while I didn't remember every aspect of it, I remember it was being like, wasn't it like a guy that was like in the shadows, just yelling out the names of things? And that was pretty much what it is. And then, I mean, I think the direction behind that commercial at some point, because you see him flip to the four, like he, you know, he, his head's on the left, right, up, down. So he's doing like trying to make the impression that you're watching overhead and he's being like the screen, right? Because it's an mm -hmm. overhead game and they're trying to convey that. But I don't even, and, and the same thing, he's just yelling Zelda over and over again. It is, it is the wildest commercial. And the other one, and this is a weird, weird train to a lot of the, the advertising in Zelda. There is a nerd one where a nerd and a bully sit down to play Zelda together because it's the, the game that brings nerds and bullies together. And just 
one of them starts rapping as they play. And it is the most bizarre thing ever. And they, they keep that up. There are raps that show up in Zelda related commercials for at least a couple games. Mm-hmm. It, it is weird. The Zelda advertising campaigns were never normal. It's funny when the, I'll actually do a little bit of a fast forward. When the Nintendo Wii came out, I happened to have previously worked at Toys R Us at the time. And so when the Wii came out that morning, everybody else was making all these plans. There was a whole South Park episode about it. And in my head, I woke up that morning. I was like, I think I'll get a Wii. So everybody else was like getting their like, you know, 8 a.m., 7 a.m. stuff. Toys R Us didn't even open until like, 11 or 10 at the time and i called my old boss and was like hey you guys go oh we's and he's like yeah we got plenty of them and there's no line come on down and i i went and got a wii and when it went to get games there were the there was the games that they were offering one of them was red steel and the other one was zelda i think it was twilight princess i opted for red steel because I liked the idea of a first-person shooter where you could use a sword and a gun as the thing. I thought that would implement. I thought it would implement the the Wii system better. And boy, did I make the wrong decision there. I've never actually played through Twilight Princess because, again, we were talking earlier. Like I did hit a point. So I remember sophomore in college, I played The Wind Waker. I actually had that on a GameCube, and it was a, it was one of the weirdest experiences. I had no. That's problems. the very chibi one, right? Yeah, where you're like the little guy and it's like cell shaded. It's, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a fun game. The only complaint is at some point you have to collect all the pieces of the Triforce. And you have to like boat all over the entire land. It's like, why does this family keep making you do this, Jeff? They, they hate you. Mm-hmm. That was the annoying part. But it's I actually had some people like walk into my dorm room and just like sit and watch me play. It was a very surreal experience because, you know, I was a coder that just like played video games. Like I was like, all right. Yeah. But it was a, it was a fun game. And so, you know, I, I got through that, but then after about that, I like actually started taking school more seriously and like kind of fell off of Zelda. And then I got old and it was like, oh yeah, the best games are the ones from when I'm a kid. But to clarify, and I know you've said the same thing on the show. It's like, I could have a lot of nostalgia and enjoy a lot of stuff and collect stuff from my childhood while recognizing I'm like, oh yeah, this, this is, this is garbage compared. My kid gets to like watch the Mandalorian. And I remember liking the Ewok movies as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I like Rendor, yeah. If you are, if you are complaining about the quality of like the Obi-Wan show about Baby Yoda, et cetera, like you, you, you're not a Star Wars fan. I'm like, do you remember what we went through? Like, no. Yeah. That's, I, you know, it's one of those things where, how do I put it? Like masters of the universe. I'm, I'm, I, I very rarely use Facebook because it's bad. I have to use it for my job, but I, I am in a masters of the universe group. And a lot of these, I'm going to call them, how do I say this correctly? Stupid fucking dipshits. Um, that they see, they saw the revelation and they got so mad that Tila was the focus, that she was a strong woman, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, this isn't what I grew up on. The stuff I grew up on is so much better. And I would just be like, no, it's not. It's bad. But we love it because of the memories that we have. And I don't understand why people have this cognitive dissonance where they seem to ignore the fact that the reason that they love the stuff we loved growing up is not because of the skill that it took to make it and and the all-around finished product. It's that you remember not paying taxes and not having bills and Granted, being an adult and having money in the bank account, that that's great. But 
when you're a kid and and everything is essentially free to you and you have no real no no real worries beyond you know schoolyard issues or homework or things like that that's the nostalgia like nostalgia is a hell of a drug it, it's and many times it's the first time you saw it right like yeah. for many people star wars the first time they saw the joseph campbell narrative for me like i said zelda 2 hit me at a point where i was i think just skilled enough at games to like be like oh i can beat this i'm good enough i didn't beat it but you know felt competent i think zelda one i wasn't quite there and then I remember it fondly because it was a game that was like one of the first I did well at the first time I'd seen a lot of stuff. And then, as mentioned, couldn't have it. So I become an adult. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can buy that. I can buy that now. I can buy that piece of my childhood. Remember it fondly. Now, that compared to Breath of the Wild, right? I haven't played Breath of the Wild yet. Similar reasons to you. It's just like, I don't have the time and I don't want to get super invested. And, you know, I, I buy newer things and I don't do them. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to. But it's like, I can still recognize when I see Breath of the Wild screen gaps or whatever or playthroughs. I'm like, oh, yeah. That's a million times better. Right? Are you kidding? Yeah. It It is definitely one of those things where I'll see games now and I'll be like, oh, this is incredible. And I can't play it. Like a lot of people ask me, they're like, do you play this game? And I'm like, no, I can't. And the reason for that is I have an addictive personality. I will fall into this. I need to play something that has a nice insulated moment that I can share with a friend and then not move forward. The idea of me moving forward streaming wise is a little bit different because I guess if I'm doing that, it's sort of like playing with a friend, kind of. Mm. I'm still a little bit nervous about that because I don't like a lot of, for example, the video game I play the most is Dr. Mario. I play Dr. Mario with my girlfriend all the time. We have gotten so much value out of the NES classic for two reasons. One, because it saved me the money of having to do anything for Link. Because when you were like, I'd like to do this, I was like, well, shit, I have this readily available. And very funny that I was called out the other day for playing this game. And she's like, you still playing this one? And I'm like, I'm doing research. <laughs> Let me, I'll call, I'll, I'll be right back. I just have to, I have to beat this guy. And then pick it up and start playing it some more. But it's Dr. Mario. Dr. Mario is the game I like. That is a game that you can finish in eight minutes. You know, that that we, you know, when we play head to head back and forth and just talk mad shit, you can do handicaps in that game. So like I play on level 18, she plays on level 10. That is a good example of the two of us that have enough room to play the game to our skill level and be evenly matched. So I do that a lot. But when I look at a lot of these new games and people are just like a good example is was it it was either Overwatch or Fortnite. I was at a friend's place. I was training some friends and they, they had rented this kind of mansion in L.A. And I went to go check in on one of them because we had a session and he was playing. I, it was either Fortnite or Overwatch and I forget which yeah. one it was. And he's like, yeah, you got to play this game. And I was like, put that fucking controller down and get downstairs and punch for real. I was like, we're going to do real fighting now. Like, put that down. And it was like this addiction, this person who has worked their ass off and, and you know, is, is, you know, doing this thing or whatever and was just like, couldn't stop playing this game. And I'm like, that would be me. But without the financial backing that this person had. This feels like the end of the G.I. Joe's or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles PSA. Like, kids, video games are a problem. Trust Jeff. They're not a problem if you have the ability to step away from them. The problem is some of us don't have that ability. And I'm one of those people. Like I, when I say I have an addictive personality, it means that I will 
If I get invested in anything, I will consume it to an unhealthy degree. That includes reading. And I don't care what anybody says, but overreading is a problem because you're ignoring a lot of other facets in your life. I, I, I cannot, the, the rise of internet statements where things are like where reading and intellectual pursuits are considered moralistic and physical pursuits are considered vain has broken humanity in my, in my head. It's sort of like the idea that there, there was a little while, and I think we've gotten away with it, that masculinity is inherently negative, where it's like, no, we've, we've diagnosed that it's toxic masculinity, and you can be a masculine person and not be a detriment to the community. And actually, I think masculinity is a very important role to play for certain people. I don't ascribe to a lot of the whining, complaining sense of entitlement that a lot of toxic men have, but... If you meet me, I, I, I portray very max, excuse me, masculine ideals. I'm, I'm a fighter. That's what I do still. I think balance is key. I think it's sort of like any, think of it as like D and D or, or Zelda. If link, if you put all of your, all of your, your numbers into attack and you, you do not put your numbers into magic and health, you're not going to do well. I have two responses to you. One verifies your point and one, I get to hold my head in shame being your point. To do the fairy quest I like doing, the optimal read is to maximize magic until you can cast fairy at the cheapest spell. Mm-hmm. So in playing the game, I will intentionally maximize magic to do that. Mm-hmm. Fun thing, Japan versus US. In the United States, when you die, you save your progress in the game entirely. Oh, I know this. In, in Japan, Japan, if you have maximized the stat, it knocks you to your lowest. So in Japan, they actually tell you the thesis of the game is if you're going to play this game, you got to bat, you got to have health, you got to have magic, you know, it's the Triforce idea, right? You got to have courage, wisdom, power, basically. In the United States, they're like, hey, do, do whatever you, max out power if you would like. Yeah. yeah, I did know that. I did. That was one of the things I found in that research as well was that aspect of it. But I do, you know, or, or like D&D, you want to up all of the aspects of your life. And I back that up, which is why I, I would love to do, you know, when it's like talking about like a Zelda podcast and I'm breaking out like my Zelda shirt that I'm wearing and stuff like that while still being like, and then I'm going to go box after this. I like that balance. I think it's so important, so key. And Zelda 2 is a great example of that. So I'm actually, it's nice to have that sort of tie in. And also, yeah, vintage gaming is a lot more fun for me because it tends to be quicker. Although I guess with deathmatch stuff, you can do that too. Like I'd I'd say the most recent games that I've really consumed were like the Battlefront games and Star Wars. Well, the old, I I haven't played any of the new ones. The old Star Wars ones I liked, but those actually took a while. Like the LucasArts ones on the Super Nintendo, those were fun. Oh, well, oh, so Battlefront was an Xbox original game. So Battlefront itself, I mean, there was game, there were games like Shadows of the Empire. There were the Super Star Wars games on the Super Nintendo. When when you move forward to N64, you had Shadows of the Empire, you know, PlayStation had what, Terrascasi, and there was all these different, you know, Rogue Squadron and stuff like that. But Battlefront came out and it was a sort of third person shooter. And I think eventually it graduated to first person, but like Battlefront 2 for the the original Xbox is still one of my favorite games. There it is. And, uh, by the way, Shadows of the Empire, that was mine. That, I dug that game. That was back before Hawk became like a punchline. You know, it was the first game that was done like perfectly in a game. You know, like we never have to do Hawk. Like, sorry to sound like an old person. Shadows of the Empire did Hawk perfectly. 
Yeah. We never have to go back and every Star Wars game goes back to Hoth. I love Shadows of the Empire because it's part of a marketing blitz where Shadows of the Empire was released concurrently with a book and a a soundtrack. So really? it, soundtrack. it was it was considered so there's a soundtrack for shadows of the empire for the book they did a full multimedia release that was everything but a visual narrative man how the world again we're talking like old versus new how the world's changed i remember the book was great i really liked the Loved book or, i mean i remember the book as great i yeah. i read a lot of the extended universe and i think i could definitely go back with hindsight and just go no <laughs> Like you were in middle school, man. This this isn't a good book, but you know it's a that's good book. Why. It's fun. But it's an easy read, but it is very good. And it, it was fast. I remember like I read it in eighth grade, so I think I had at least the you know English. I had had enough English classes where at least I can trust eight, yeah. eighth grade me to be like, yeah, you enjoyed that book. It was probably good. You're yeah, I was like right on the cusp of. I was just finishing up like the second Aliens versus Predator novel around that time. So it was an easy transition for me to go into more of sort of dark horse sci-fi, 20th century Fox science fiction, an easy move. I did love that. And this is, I think, a really great, it's a really great series of tangents that we had because the show is called Shut Up Nerd. And all we got to do is stop talking. We've, <laughs> we've wrapped. And I just want to continue talking about nerdy shit this whole time. Like this is, this is what I want to do. Like, this is why I love the name because we do have to pump our own brakes. Yeah. And what I'll, what I'll say on that, by the way, is I'll throw this out a couple of things. One, the internet's so weird, like the, the parasocial aspect, because I mentioned your talk radio and I grew up with talk radio and the, the world has changed. Where like you can talk to talk radio in real, like you can text the person on talk radio in real time. And that's bizarre. And it, as a fan, it definitely gets interesting where you're like, you're like, oh, this, like, oh, I, I said something. And it's a lesson a lot of people learn. You and Adam Todd Brown do a really good job of like, Pushing back on the fans, be like, yeah, I know you can talk to me, but that doesn't mean you get to be rude, like, just because I'm here. Yeah, that's a thing that we had talked. It was me, Adam, and, and Vanessa Guerrero at one point in time. We had discussed that where, like, the interactions are great. I absolutely love the interactions. But there is sort of that, like you said, sometimes people become overfamiliar and they, they start to, like, shit on you like they're your college buddy. And you have to be like, hey, that's not how you talk to me. Like, I don't know you. And 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 so I would say that our fandom has been 99.9% positive. And, you know, sometimes you get a negative review. And if it's if it's a personal attack, when somebody's just like, I don't like when Jeff is on the episodes, I don't, you know, bring back this other person or whatever. And, you know, you will see that we'll be like, how about you shut the fuck up? Like, we like who we like. And I personally recognize that not every flavor is, is, is the right flavor for me. You know, there are podcasts where if somebody is a guest that I don't like, I'm just like, I'm probably going to skip this one. But, but I'll throw it to your show. You've said this and I have to echo it. Jeff has cool friends is aptly named. A lot of time it's cool to recognize somebody that you know on the show or recognize the property. Like, like, oh, I'm a big, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Oh my goodness. This person did that. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. The football one was like the quickest clip. It's funny because you said that's one of your, I was like, Jeff knows someone in the NFL. This I got to hear. Like that was beyond that though. The, the important aspect of that episode, which if you've never listened to the Sean McKeon episode of Jeff has cool friends, please look that up. It's, I consider it to be one of my best episodes for this very specific reason. The last time that I spoke to Sean McKeon, aside from social media interactions was when he was a student in my classroom. 
And now he is a member of the Dallas Cowboys. To me, that interaction of us finally talking after having left one version of a relationship, the the sort of teacher-student relationship, now to an interview relationship where we are, in a way, I mean, not, you know, obviously not peers in the way of being exactly equal, but physical and intellectual peers. We are both adults and we are both tall. So like there's less of a, but there's less of a domineering aspect of it. He doesn't have to have, he doesn't need reverence for me. He doesn't need that level of like student to teacher respect. He can talk to me like a friend. That to me, and I, I told him specifically, I was like, do not, we do not speak until we record because I am so curious as to how this episode is going to go. But I do like that you're saying like, it's nice, we're, we're equals and I'm not telling him what to do. They're like, hey, no talk until class starts. <laughs> you don't talk until the bell rings. But I, I, and he agreed. He's like, yeah, I really want to see how this works out. And I love that episode. It's my least listened to episode because my fans are a little bit snobby sometimes when it comes to sports. They don't want to, to hear things about sports. They're the kind of people that are like, oh, is it the superb owl party? And you're like, that is, it's over. It's old. I don't watch sports ball. And it's like, yeah, that's not what this is about. You think I'm going to do an hour-long episode about football? That sounds boring as shit. I had a lot of fun. I was actually really looking. The two, I'm going to put it out there. The two episodes that people produced themselves and co-hosted with me, I couldn't have asked for two better ideas for me to, to talk about. You can possibly edit this out if you don't want to spoil, but what's the, what's the other topic? No, we can talk about it. So the other show is called and Nerds. Uh, and it's with, but God, this, your fans are the best, man. Sorry. Yeah. Me and, and I, 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 I think it's Stefan Nielsen. It might be Steven and I'm mispronouncing it. And that is my bad if I did, because I, I kind of was in the zone when he said his name out loud the first time. And, and I was like, wait, what did I say? it right. But we tackle nightfall, the Batman, the breaking of the bat storyline from 1993 in which we get an interview with one of the architects of that storyline at the beginning of the show we were talking backgrounds you have a million you know novels etc behind you i grabbed i am a little yeah 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 okay yeah the same the snobs that are like oh they're not real they're books fine i gave all of mine when i moved cross country to my brother i gave all my comic books and those I had the nightfall like the, the 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 full collection and because of the age i read that thing I think I had like that and the death of Superman. There were like three. There was like Nightfall, Night Rise, or whatever the next one were. Night, Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's okay. End. I think it was Night's End. So I think I had Nightfall and Night's End. Read those a million times just because they're what I had. And Death of Superman, I had the like collection. Mm-hmm. So that is amazing. That is, that is, I, I cannot, and I'm, I'm almost like, hey, Jeff, just, just, I, I think I offered, I was like, hey, I have some software that could edit this. I'm like, you can just send me the master for that. I'll listen to that instead. That's amazing. And your fans are awesome. Two nerds. That is, that is great. It's, it's, it's not unexpected, but it is a delight. I'm so glad I got to cover these things because I'm, I'm very excited. It's, it's great that they both, you both chose something with the word nerd in it. That is all in a way sort of derogatory. I think that's very funny because it's certainly the energy that I guess I give off doing this episode on the adventure of Link Zelda two. you read my mind in that I never advertised how much I like this game. You just plucked it out of the air. And I'm like, dude, I just beat this game. Like I had just done it. So when you asked me to do that, I'm like, well, I'm going to just play through the second quest. And I did. And I was like, hey, this sucks. Well, I was going to say, it's your shirt. You were wearing that shirt. And I was like, I'm a Zelda fan. I bet he is too. And I mean, I will, last thing, you were like king of the nerds. You, you, you know a bunch of stuff. You know a bunch of nerdy topics. Your breadth of knowledge is great. 
So that's why I think you're, you're great for these shows. But I mean, I will throw the official shut up nerd flag because I've taken, I've taken you just a little past time, Jeff, that we agreed to ahead of time, or at least what we were aiming for. All good. What, how do you, how do you want to end this out? If you want to listen to Jeff has cool friends, as well as Ugg fine with Kim crawl and others, you can hit up patreon.com slash Jeff may for early uncensored episodes with bonus content, or you can listen to Jeff has cool friends a week later for free. It's just, I bleep out the swears because you have to pay for the cursing. You can also check out, as we've mentioned before, you don't even like sports and unpopular opinion, both on the unpops network, as well as Tom and Jeff watch Batman on the gamefully unemployed Patreon. You can also check me out live at Mint on Card at Blast from the Past on Magnolia and Burbank, the second Friday of every month. And that, to me, that's about it. Just follow me at Hey There Jeff Rowe, if you haven't. Follow Andres at the Nerd Numbers. What else you got to plug? You got it. You, you, you do other stuff. My forte tends to be sports. So there's a site, boxscoregeeks.com. I've got over a decade in blogging and podcasting on basketball related stuff. <laughs> Right. which is definitely fun. So if you really like sports, so if you, if you don't don't like sports, I'll phrase it that way. You can follow just nerd numbers on Twitter and that's where I'll, if ever I do get around to writing or whatever, the, you know, the pandemic and a kid, man, just takes a lot out of you in terms of spare time. <laughs> that's a fair point. Well, thank you all very much for listening to our the inaugural episode of Shut Up Nerd. Obviously, we had a lot to sort of discuss and a lot of tangents on there. We appreciate that. I'm pretty sure we're going to streamline the episodes as we move on forward, but I do like the way we did this one. I liked that we covered a lot of different ground and it gave us a lot of previews for the future. Other than that, I guess we say goodbye, right? Bye. Bye. Next time on Shut Up Nerd, our heroes return to talk the greatest boxing game of all time, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Both hosts have storied past with the game. Will we find out if Jeff ever defeated Iron Mike? Will the hosts go off on nerdy tangents? Tune in to find out. Make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash Jeff May and follow Hey There Jeffro and Nerd Numbers on Twitter to make sure you don't miss out. See you then.